The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Beth Coppage. What a precious privilege to be here together tonight. And I'd like us, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke 22. Luke 22, and we'll start with verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said, Behold, when you entered the city, when you entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house when she enters. Then you will say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room. There make ready. So they went. And they found it just as Jesus had said to him, them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, Jesus sat down and the 12 disciples with him. And he said to them, this is Jesus with fervent desire. I have desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and he gave it to them. This is my body, which is given to you. And, and we do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant of, in my blood, which is shed for you. But the hand, oh, behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me, and, and is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that one for whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves who would do this thing. And now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he, Jesus said to him, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he is greatest among you, let him be the youngest. And he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? It is not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Oh, holy Jesus. Would you like to come tonight to Bible study? And would you come and would you open our hearts to only your voice? And we're asking tonight that we will not be the same.
because we have met together with you and with each other. And would you take the words of Holy Scripture and would you so anoint them to our hearts that, Lord, they go through the, every fiber of our being and we are never the same again. We ask you tonight to not be our guest, but to be the host. And the beautiful thing about you, Jesus, is you talk to each one of us right where we are because you know us by name and you created us and formed us and you don't make any mistakes. So we thank you for the thrill of this Bible study tonight with you, Jesus. In your name, amen. A number of years ago, I remember when Jesus pointed out to me, Jeremiah 5.1, run up and down through the streets of Wilmore, Kentucky. Oh, search through her squares and see if you can find one person who seeks truth and does righteousness and I can forgive the city. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's kind of an incredible statement right there, Jesus. Well, then it burned in my heart. I was only one. I was a wife and mother of four and a seminary professor's wife. But it just, it gripped my soul. And I thought, Lord, it didn't say there you had to have a PhD in XYZ or an MD. It just said anyone who was available to the spirit of Jesus. So that gripped my heart. Another thing that came that during those days was we began to have, Al was doing discipleship when he would meet with two groups of guys a week and do discipleship like an early Methodist class meeting with accountability with guys at the campus. Then he said, Bethy, you do the wives or the sweethearts or the girlfriends. So I go, oh, okay. So I began to do discipleship. We began to have more women that wanted to be in discipleship than we had groups for. So then I said, Jesus, what we, should we do? He said, well, pray for more disciple makers. Well, then the Lord raised up the opportunity to be able to, in, to be able to teach a Bible study. So for 18 years, I taught every Wednesday morning the, through 33 or 34 books of the Bible. And then we just would meet. On Tuesdays, we would meet for prayer in my living room before we would meet Wednesday for Bible study. And then, we, and then we would have an intergenerational Bible study and we would have the word, prayer, missions, and then discipleship. And God began to work and he began to change lives. And then Jesus said, Bethy, I want, you need to have the emphasis not just on being born again, but being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because you and I are incomplete if all we know Jesus as, as our Savior. Because he died and the last thing he said is, wait for the promise of the Father. And the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit of God. So, and then we had one of the women that was helping me, helping in Bible study, she was the coordinator. Um, and we were doing it together. We were meeting in my living room and then we were trying to think about how to mobilize prayer. And then we were very gripped by the Lydia prayer group, the, Act 16. 
and a little group of women meeting by the riverside. So as we're praying, we thought it was just a little group of women meeting by the riverside, but God used that little group for revival to come to a continent, not just a city from Jeremiah 1. Ooh, oh my goodness, are you that big, Jesus? Oh, he said, oh, just try me, see what I can do. Well, we said, okay, well, then as we're sitting, kneeling there in the living room, don't you love it that Jesus comes to your living room and my living room, your kitchen table and my kitchen table? And they, and Phaedra from Greece said, do you know what? I wonder if he doesn't want us to pray. Acts 1.8, that, that the spirit would come and go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and you will be witnesses in the ends of the world. And, it's, and then we thought, oh, yes. And so we got a Lydia prayer journal we began to put together and we began to pray through the continents. And then we started with Jerusalem, which is your home and mine, your kids and mine. We began to pray for that that was on our hearts right here. And then as we move in the spirit of Jesus, he begins to widen our horizons. And then we begin to think, oh, I better pray for the ladies at the church. And I better pray for the community. Oh, and I maybe should pray for the school systems. And there was a widening so that we love, begin to love beyond ourselves when he moves us into spirit-filled prayer. And then it's like, oh, Samaria. Oh, the place of the state, the, the states around me. Oh, the nation and the world. So as we got ready, and, and I have been, were to do this together, as we were praying and working on it together, but as we began to pray and work on the homework, all of a sudden, we thought, let's lay out in the homework what God did, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. But before we could do that, God led to Luke 22, and this, this, and this is about the Last Supper, but it's like the disciples were not ready to pray. And this gets a picture in Luke 22 of before Pentecost prayer and after Pentecost prayer. And that while we're on tonight, God wants to talk to us about whether you are before Pentecost prayer or an after Pentecost prayer. So what are, what do we notice in this chapter right in the beginning? I didn't read the first part of the chapter because it's about Judas and it makes me so sad. And in the first part of, of chapter 22 of Luke, this is the, the preface of the, the last meal he has with his disciples. It's right before the cross. And who betrays him? Judas betrays him. And Judas was one of the 12. And why did he betray him? Because Judas wanted a gospel without the cross and he wanted a gospel without suffering. And he didn't have any room in his theology for a gospel that wasn't a power gospel and a me first gospel. And so in the beginning, one of Jesus' team went aside and betrayed him. But then you see in what the passage that we read in the first part, it's so incredible because it's not, the initiation is not the disciples. The initiation is Jesus. And what is Jesus saying here? Jesus said, would you go prepare an upper room? 
And really tonight, we're going to talk about two upper rooms and a garden <laughs> and the transformation that can come to women when God gets you and gives you an upper room and then he takes you to the garden. And so there's, he takes me and said, would you go and everything and just get the upper room ready? I want to know tonight, do you have an upper room? Because Jesus would like you to have a place prepared in your house or your home or where you work, an upper room where you meet God. And during the years, mine has changed. When we lived in England, it was a little green chair. When we lived in Columbia, it was my bedroom. Then when it got here, my kids were, it was downstairs in the, my family room. Now it's back upstairs in our room. I just curl up in bed and I've got all my stuff spread out there. Do you have a place where you meet Jesus? Because the one who wants you to meet him more than you want to meet Jesus is Jesus wants to meet you. And he, they meet him in the upper room. But listen to pathos in the heart of Jesus. In verse 15, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There are some things that Jesus wants to share with his 12. And he said, who are these, the 11 that were faithful? You are the ones in verse 28 who have continued with me in my trials. They've loved him. They've left all to follow him. They have been with him. They have identified with him. They have preached with him. They've cast out demons. They have healed people. They have listened to him teach. I mean, they have been with him. But it, and he said, I want to share my heart with you. I want to tell you what's on my heart. And let me give you a vision of the big picture, God's vision. Where there is no vision, the people perish. He said, let me explain to you how God thinks. And let me explain to you the big picture. And he said, so as he's trying to unfold it, he starts with Holy Communion. This is my bread. And this is symbolic of my body that will be broken for you. And then the, the cup, uh, this is my blood that will be poured out for you. And they do not have categories for what God is saying to them. And then he says, there's one at the table who will betray me. Well, the disciples immediately are thrown off guard and, just, and they begin to think they're distracted. Well, who, what is he talking about? And why is he talking about suffering? And why is he talking about the, his body being broken and his blood being spilled? We know that's not going to happen. Have you ever had conversations like that with God? God, this is not how you are supposed to work. Let me just tell you how you're supposed to work. I don't know about you, but I have. And so they go, they're distracted. What is he talking about? And then with Jesus pouring out his heart to them, they immediately began to talk about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, because they're thinking of a power gospel and they're thinking of position and prestige. And Jesus is thinking of laying down his life for the redemption of the world and a, lot, a gospel of laying down his life and his self-interest for the lives and the interests of others. And they do not comprehend it. They don't have the mind of Christ. They can't think his thoughts, even though they have been with him for three years. 
And then, then Jesus has to stop and he has to talk to them about greatness in the kingdom of God. Greatness is not being served. Greatness is when you lay down your life for another and let and serve them and put their interests ahead of your own. It's a radically different way to live the Jesus way. And then, then he said, then Jesus prays for them. As we turn over in Luke, and it's Luke um, 31, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan wants to sit you as weak, but I have prayed for you that your strength will not fail. So Jesus prays for Simon, just like he's prayed for the other disciples. And we know this so well in John 17, where he talks about how he prays. Not for the world so much as he prays for those that the Father has given him out of the world, that they might know him and know eternal life. And then Jesus prays for them. And then Peter, in all the bravado of Peter, he goes, Jesus, wait a minute. I will die for you. I will never leave you. I'm ready to go to the death for you. And there's a braggadocious and, a, and, a, and it's all in good intent. But and Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And when we think about it, how is it possible that you could be that close to Jesus for that long and you would not, you would be so impotent to be able to really minister to the heart of Jesus? as these prayers were. First, they couldn't understand him. They were distracted. They're arguing. They can't hear what he wants to say to them. Does it sound like some of our prayer meetings or our times when we try to meet with God? And then Jesus says, he talks to them in the, in the next few verses, 34 through 38. He says, when I was with you, did you, I told you not to take anything and I provided for you. Now I will be leaving and I can still provide for you. But if you have something, you take it with you. And so God is, Jesus is said, I'm, I will be there with you. I will provide for you. I am praying for you. And then he takes them from the physical upper room. And he takes them to the one in the garden. <laughs> and the one who created the first garden in the whole world. He goes to the garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, uh, Jesus restores in the garden of Gethsemane what was lost in the garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve turned away from God and said, I think we'll do it our way and ate of the forbidden fruit. And then Jesus goes back to the garden and he says to his disciples, and he was accustomed to going to the garden and he was accustomed to going there to pray. And they followed him. And he said to his disciples, pray that you enter not into temptation. Well, their spirits are willing. But he goes a stone's throw away for them, kneels down and says, Father, 
if you will take this cup away from me, I would be so grateful. But if not, not my will, but thine be done. And ladies, that is the essence of the Christian life right there. Where you and I, even after we're born again, even after we've walked with Jesus for a while, there needs to come a crisis moment with your life and my life where Jesus modeled it for us right here, where we come and say, Jesus, I choose you and I choose your will, no matter what it costs. And in Spanish, it's cuesta lo que cuesta, cost what it costs. I choose you, Jesus. And we lay down the lordship of our lives and we surrender our will to his will and say, not my will, but thine be done. And remember, I've said this before about our precious friend, Sam Kimmelason, the Indian preacher. He said, hands up, palms down. Hands up, Jesus, I'm all yours. Your will, not mine. And palms down. Nothing sticks. Nothing sticks. I'm yours. And so Jesus models that for us. And his, his agony is so great with what he is facing in the redemption of the world and the sins of all mankind. And even in the past three weeks, those that have knelt at the altar and heard repentance and repentance and repentance. It is, you have to come and say, Jesus, only you can carry it. I cannot even hear anymore. And he can. He can. And then he comes in agony and God the Father sends his angel and ministers to him and strengthens him. And he comes and finds his disciples sleeping instead of praying. There's no power to stand in the gap with Jesus. There's no power to share the burden of interceding for a lost world or a lost family or a lost teenager down the street until we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that is the beauty of the joy of being filled with the Holy Spirit is one of the happiest things is you and I, God can begin to transform us so that you and I can begin to be filled with the spirit of Jesus and the things that are on his heart for me to carry and the things that are on his heart for you to carry. We can come alongside of him and begin to intercede with God and eternity can be different because you lived and I lived. And God can change not only your family and my family, not only your, your church, but your, your city, your state, and even the ends of the world. And the beautiful thing about this Bible study tonight is we have victory reports this week from some from the prayers on this Bible study and the ones God's joined together of just God doing that. There was no power there. No power. They fell asleep. But then we pick up the story in Acts 2. And if you'll go to Acts 1, if you'll go to Acts 1, 
And we'll pick it up in verse four. And being assembled together with them, Jesus has not ascended yet. He commanded the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the secret for real intercessory prayer is that we do just exactly what Jesus said. We wait until we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. I love to use the translation. This is called the Beth translation. And Jesus said to them, don't wiggle from Jerusalem till you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't wiggle. You'll just make a mess of things. Just look at Luke 22. Look what a mess they made. He said, don't wiggle till you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, you, until you receive the promise from the Father. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has appointed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses in. And there's our key verse he gave us, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then he ascends up into heaven. And, it, and it's interesting. And Jesus ascends and the angels say, just as he ascended, he will come again. So there's the promise of the second coming. And then what do the disciples do this time? They obey. Oh, happy day. <laughs> they obey. <laughs> and they, verse 12 of Acts 1, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they went, entered, they went up into an upper room where they were staying and it was the 11 disciples and they're all named Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they were all and other women and other and his brothers. And they were all in one accord in prayer and supplication. So they're all together in a prayer meeting and all the disciples are in one accord in prayer and supplication. And then Peter stands up and instead of vying for who's going to be first and I'm the, I'm the king of the mountain and all that kind of stuff that we read in Luke 22, what he's saying is we need to wait. Scripture, this to men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit had spoken concerning Judas. He shared about the death of Judas. But then he begins to say, we need someone else to be the, take Judas's place. And instead of jockeying and vying for power, they pray and, and cast lots to see who the spirit chooses. But this is actually the last part, chant, the last time in the book of Acts they ever check cast lots or just decide by that means from then on out, after Acts 2, they are filled with the Spirit, and they just ask the Spirit, and he directs them. But they are beginning to begin to understand. And then in 2, 
on the day of Pentecost. And it's interesting, the day of Pentecost commemorated when, when um, on Mount Sinai, when the law was given to Moses. And the day of Pentecost here is when the law of God is not written on tablets of stone, but Ezekiel 36 talks about, he gives us a new heart and a new spirit. And he writes his law in your heart and in my heart. So it's not a duty anymore. I have to work, perform. His indwelling presence comes, lives in me, through me, and out of me. And he, he, he accomplishes the precious will of God. And there's an enabling and a strength in me to walk with God, to obey God, and to be holy. To be get, get over the guilt of sin, the power of sin, and the love of sin. And the Holy Spirit of God descended on that house as cloven tongues of fire. And Babel was reversed. The Tower of Babel was reversed. And there were 17 languages and people groups that heard the gospel in their own language and tongue from this little group of 120 that met God in the upper room. And do you know one sweet thing about Jesus that I love? He talks your heart language and he talks mine. And I can't tell you, when I was in Latin America and, and we were in Colombia and I would pray every day with my little Colombian friend and prayer partner, Francisca. And my Spanish was pretty pitiful. So I would try praying in Espanol, but after a while, as we'd really get to be praying, I'd say, Francisca, perdone, perdone. And then I would just pray my heart out in English and she would pray her heart out in Spanish. God speaks our heart language. And I remember one time praying with a little Korean gal and she'd been kind of this way, wishy-washy as to whether she was going to follow Jesus or not. And then one day she turned to me and we we're in, in the car in front of um, in Asbury in a semicircle. And she said, Beth, I have to pray today in Korean. And I knew then that she had done business with God. It wasn't through another language. It was through her soul language. God speaks. God speaks your love language, not just language, but how he's put you together and me together. Because each one of us is handcrafted and fashioned by God. Bara, something only God can create. And so, so valuable to the heart of God. In fact, no one loves Jesus and fulfills the place in the heart of God. That's your place even though there's seven billion people. There's a Regina place and a Martha place and a Marie place and a Pat place and a Marilyn place. Nobody else fails. <laughs> That's why he longs for us to get so, our hearts clean so he can share with us what he's got for us, for the purposes of God, for our lives. And he spoke to them in their heart language. 
Well, then notice the difference in Peter. He stands up and preaches. And he preaches out of the word of God. Because the word of God is anointed and it is powerful and it is life transforming. And what does Peter say? Then Peter says, and he uses Joel, the marvelous passage to describe what is happening here at Pentecost and what we have actually just seen the past three weeks in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University. I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all flesh, on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants. It's not a sparse sprinkle. When the Holy Spirit comes, God wants to pour out his spirit on your life and my life. So that the person he wants to recreate you and me into the person he planned us to be before the foundation of the world. Just like, oh, it's so exciting. And then there is a move of God across, and 3,000 are added to the church. And then Peter says, and we'll pick it up in 237. Now, when they heard this, the people, they were cut to the heart. That's called godly sorrow. That's called conviction of sin. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he convicts of sin. He convicts of what's right. And he convicts of the judgment to come. That there are eternal consequences for our choices. And they were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we do? And Peter said, repent which we've just seen this past week, of sin. You cannot have any sin in our lives if we're to be the prayer team that Jesus is longing for us to be. We have to be squeaky clean. And, it, and then he says, what shall we do? Repent and then be turned and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins. But then there's more. Receive the Holy Spirit of God, the gift of the Spirit. And this promise is not just for you, but it has ramifications for the generations to come. Your children, your children's children, and your children's children's, and those born and yet unborn. And, and out of that preaching prayer meeting, the church is born. <laughs> so in 40, the church is born and they continue together steadfast in the word, in fellowship, in prayer, and then sharing everything together, that loving, sharing spirit. It wasn't like this is mine and you can't have it. And I'm first, not like Luke 22. And then, and then in worship. And the church is born at the end of two. So then you have what's happened. Jesus, Jesus ascends and then he says, tarry until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then there'll be a strength and you will not be impotent Christians anymore. But I can fill you with my Holy Spirit 
who will write my my word in your heart and you and give you the enable you to live like I want you to live live like a follower of Jesus Christ in the love laughter joy beauty and glory of being a person who loves Jesus full of all the fullness of God Ephesians 3 out of that beauty then it goes the revival song then it goes to Judea 3 to 7 and and it, and it starts with a, a healing and then goes to three to seven. And then you have an eight, there's seven, Stephen is killed because when there's a move of God, what you have is re revival, but then you have a riot because the enemy's not happy. So the book of Acts is like riot and revival and riot, revival and riot. <laughs> so then you have, you get in, in verse, Seven, the first martyr for the church is not is um is a layman who's waiting on tables and caring for widows. And he preaches one of the best sermons in scripture. And Jesus himself rises up to receive him, standing at the right hand of the Father. And and Stephen's last prayer before he dies is just like Jesus. Jesus, don't charge them with this sin. And when he said that, he fell asleep. And then God takes that very hard situation. And what does he do? He uses it to scatter the believers. So it goes, it's a gospel not just for the Jews. It's a gospel for Judea. But then you have one man in Acts 8. Philip, and I love this chapter, who was also one of the laymen, the deacons who waited on widows and served food and took care of the, the needs of the church people. And he decides God leads him to go to Samaria. Oh my, the Jews didn't go to Samaria. They went around Samaria. Do you want to know the need of our hour for racial relations? It's to be filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And Philip said, oh, I'm going to go share Jesus with them. And then, and he did. And revival broke out. And then Peter and all the disciples had said, it said, oh my goodness, is Jesus this big? So they all had met Jesus as Savior. If you look at Acts, the first part of Acts 8, so then they sent Peter and, and John to come. And then Peter and John share with the Samaritans how to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And they're filled with the Spirit of Jesus. And revival comes to the Samaritans. And that to a Jewish believer would be absolutely, God's that big? They are all. If you only knew, for God so loved the world. <laughs> They're beginning to catch on and get not their mind, but the mind of Jesus. And then, then the spirit tells him, Philip, would you leave that revival? And I want you to go to the Gaza Strip which is way down in the desert. You're way up here. Go way down there. 
And he didn't argue. He didn't say, yes, Lord, but yes, Lord, I have a better idea. He obeyed. And on the Gaza Strip, he found one man, an Ethiopian, who was at a hungry heart. And he went with, and he was reading, reading Isaiah 53. And he was an Ethiopian from the court of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And it, God cared about the Ethiopians. God cared about the Samaritans, but God saw that hungry heart and he moved. He had Philip go to great lengths to go down to meet him, to be available to share the gospel with him. And if you and I begin to live in the intimacy of a spirit-filled walk with God, there'll be times you get a, a person on your heart when you wake up in the morning and you'll know in your heart, Jesus wants you to call, write a letter, go see him, or take them flowers. And he wants you to talk to him. And that heart was a heart prepared. And before it's over in Acts 8, do you know what has happened? The Ethiopian has believed in Jesus, confessed his faith, and been baptized. And guess what's happened? The gospel has been not only to Samaria, but the world. And the first one was an African man from Ethiopia with a hungry heart. The greatest thing in the world Jesus Christ can give any of us is have a heart that is hungry for him. And this week, it was so sweet. When we got here, and I was in Hughes without, and we were on the prayer team. I walked in to Hughes in the front by the altar. And the, the first, as soon as, when I was did it initially, I just went to the altar and couldn't stop sobbing. <laughs> and to thank Jesus for the privilege to, to be in that holy place. But then when I got up and I began, I, I noticed there was this couple. So I went over and I said, oh, honeys, how, I'm Beth. How are you? Where are you from? He was in a wheelchair. She was next to him. We're from Nazareth in Palestine. You're what? And why did you come? Oh, we want to see, be where God is. We need God. And our people need God. And we need God. So then I said, so then I, then, then I was, then the next, I sat down next to some people. I hadn't even gotten to the altar yet, sat down and I go, honey, where are you from? It was two women. Oh, we're from Connecticut. I said, Connecticut? We're praying for Connecticut. We're asking for revival in, in um, New England. And they, I said, I haven't met any Christians from Connecticut. Well, we're two Christians, but we need God to do a deeper work in our lives. That's why we come. And then we want to go back and share with Connecticut. And then I turned around and it was just two rows of kids. So I looked at them and I said, honey, where are you from? 
oh, we're from Oklahoma. We're high schoolers from Oklahoma. We got a whole batch of us. We sure do need God in our high school in Oklahoma. So we talked our youth leaders into just bringing us here to this place so we could get hold of God and we could bring him back to our high school. We need him in Oklahoma. That is the power of what she, not the power, the person of Jesus in your life and my life, because there's a hunger in the human heart. And as you and I begin to live and move and have our being in him and let the love and sweetness of Jesus, his love, not yours, not mine, pour through us. We can live in that kind so that as they come and then as we sat there and talked about Jesus and Jesus coming to Connecticut and Palestine. And that, and that was, I could go on and on. And I'm just one of the prayers. And then we have in Acts, the end of the story is, it's not the end, but in Acts 12 through 16, is about is this 12 is the story of Peter the opposition's coming and it will come the opposition's coming and so Herod throw, kills James John's brother and puts him in and kills him and then puts Peter in prison but the church has begun to not sleep through prayer meetings. They have been filled with the spirit. So what do they do? They were caught off guard by James's death, but Peter's in prison and they go to prayer. And this is another one of my favorite practices in scripture. And do you know where the prayer meeting was held? It wasn't held in a big cathedral. It wasn't even held in a normal church. It was held in Mary's house in her living room. She was Barnabas' sister and John Mark's mother. And she must have held other prayer meetings there before because when Peter got out of prison, he knew just where to go and where the prayers would be. I want to know, have you given Jesus your sofas, your living room, and your kitchen table? <laughs> have you given him your teacups and your coffee cups and your coffee pot? Have you said, Jesus, oh, could you come and would you just anoint it and literally anoint it with oil and say, Jesus, every single person that comes through this front door, would you let them have an encounter, not with Al or with Beth or with you or with me, but with Jesus? So that eternity could be different and there could be prayer meetings in your living room, around your kitchen table, in your back patio or backyard. And that God could take your coffee cups and your one morning or one day of week and begin to turn the world in which you live right side up because Jesus has come. And Peter, they prayed and they could not even believe the answer to prayer. It was so great. They couldn't even believe it. So when Peter's knocking at the door to get in, remember Rhoda? She said, 
she didn't, she was so shocked. She didn't unlock the door and he kept knocking. Then she ran in and said, it's Peter. And the prayer meeting said, it can't be Peter. He's in prison, said it's Peter. And then sure enough, it was Peter. Does it? I wonder if God doesn't, hasn't done something. I know God's done that this week as we've seen the world and even uh, the, the media all over and the hunger for God and a tiredness of just being sin sick and weary and stressed and fearful and addicted and lost. And God is wanting you and I to get so full of the spirit of Jesus that he leads us and he begins to share his heart with us and we begin to intercede. And those that are as bound as Peter was in prison are set free and the iron gate shield. At the end of the chapter, Peter doesn't die, but Herod does. And the Bible's very graphic. He was eaten by worms. Jesus turned the tide. Then in the first part of 13, it says, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menea, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. And the first missionary journey and first missionaries were sent out, not by a committee, not by a program, but by out of a prayer meeting and they were separated by the Holy Spirit of God. And God is wanting to lift up in this day and age as the world cries out for the, Jesus. He's wanting us to get on our knees and let God say, begin to say the, the, the um, harvest is ripe, but the labors are few. And we need to get in our prayer meetings so there can be a move of God. And God's saying, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work of the kingdom. And there are three missionary um, journeys that he makes to the ends of that known world. The church was birthed in a prayer meeting. The mission was missions was birthed in a prayer meeting. And then God, and then we want to close with 16. This is the second missionary journey. And Paul and Paul and Silas start out on this one. And and they pick up Timothy and Derby, And then listen to this. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Oh, who's leading the team? The Holy Spirit. He's sending out the missionaries. Now he's giving direction. Do you have that kind of intimacy in your life and in your prayer meetings and your prayer groups with the spirit? The Holy Spirit said, no, no, no. I don't want you to go there. So they try to go to Mycenae and Bithynia. He says, no, 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 no. I don't want you to go there. It's interesting, the nose of God. 
and I sometimes balk at those. But he said he knows more than I do. Does he know more than you do too? <laughs> so then, so passing through Mycenae, they came to Troas, and Paul had a dream in the night. And a man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. And after they had seen the vision, they immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel there. When you and I enter into the fullness of the spirit, he will lead us. And there'll be a no or a yes in our hearts and spirits as we walk in obedience to him. So they sailed from Troas and they ran a straight course to Samothrace and came to Neapolis. And then they came to Philippi, which is the leading city of Macedonia where they were staying. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the, out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. And a certain woman was there named Lydia and she heard us. And she was a businesswoman, a seller of purple from Thyatira who worshiped God. And God opened her heart. <laughs> to heed the things spoken by Paul. And she and her whole household were baptized. And she begged us, if you have judged me faithful, come to my house and stay. And she persuaded us. And then the end of the chapter is, after Paul's been thrown in prison, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they departed and they encouraged them. So this is the start of the second missionary journey. They're getting ready to go to Asia, to Bithynia. God says, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit said, no. There's a hungry woman that meets with some other hungry women by a riverside on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm going to redirect the greatest apostle of all time to that little group of women because I want to do an eternal work among them that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. <laughs> and he did. And out of that riverside prayer meeting, the gospel came through all of Europe. I wonder if Paul was a little surprised and maybe disappointed to end up the great preacher and great evangelist and great missionary at a little woman's prayer meeting. But I wonder if Jesus was showing him the incredible power of what God can do when he finds a little group of women who say, God, I am hungry for all of you. I'm hungry for all of you. That tonight, we have seen miracles. Four years ago, four years ago, 
tomorrow is our celebration because we have been meeting for four years starting tomorrow. We're going into our fourth year. Every single morning at eight o'clock Eastern Standard Time for prayer. And we've been praying for revival. That Jesus would come because Jesus is the revival. It's not an organization. It's the person of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus didn't even wait for the Collegiate Day of Prayer. He came to Hughes Auditorium on February 8th. He just, he, uh, he came. And he came in a way you and I could never have dreamed when we began to meet, uh, what is it? three full years ago, starting our fourth year tomorrow. We could never have dreamed because we get to see the goodness of God in answering our prayers corporately and individually in ways that were just like Rhoda. It can't be Peter, the pre people at the prayer meeting in Acts 12. It can't be Peter, he's in prison. I hate to tell, he's at the door, he's knocking, he's knocking surprised by the answers of prayer, surprised by the deliverance, surprised by the blessings of the goodness of God. And Jesus does exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. And as we begin to get in sync with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so we're all his, he's all ours, and we're available to the purposes of God and to hear from the purposes of God then God can use us individually, but then corporately in a way that we could never imagine. And even this opportunity now. And now, oh God, it is time for you to act. Psalm 119, 126, and God's response, Exodus 6, 1. Now, you precious women, now you will see what only I can do. And God has to give us his mind and his heart and lead us as sweetly as he led in the Macedonian call. Don't go there, go here, because I have a hungry hearted woman waiting for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, would you not let us miss you? Thank you for the glory of knowing you, Jesus. Thank you for the glory of being part of your family. Thank you for the glory of belonging to you and to each other. Thank you for the chance to participate in what you want to do to reach not only our, our, us and our little worlds, but the world itself. Thank you for bringing us together. I believe just like you brought Esther you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, Jesus, as we have this time, would you please speak to our hearts for what Jesus has done? And we thank you, Jesus. Amen.